0: If ever I wanted you to have your own Bible with you, it would be this Sunday. Um, because today we are tackling the very famous, or in some circles infamous, passage of 1 Timothy 2 from verse 11. But we'll read from verse 8, just to get the flow of thought. And notoriously, one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. So, so buckle your seatbelts. Um, and I hope I can do this text justice, but also help you to understand it biblically, what God um, expects of women at worship, which is the title of this sermon. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2 verse 8. And here are the words of God. I desired then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, even the difficult ones. I pray that we would not reject your word. That you would give us soft hearts. Especially the women in our service here, Lord, that they would hear what you say that they would see the beauty of true femininity and embrace their own femininity for your glory. And may we as men, Lord, make it easy for women to be women with our love and our sacrifice and our leadership. Lord, please be merciful to me as I preach. Help me to be clear. And please honor your name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So... even as we just read it, right, you could probably feel this will not go well in today's culture. Like, just reading the passage would upset some people, right? I haven't even done anything. I just read it, and maybe some people are upset already, right? And and these verses are not just difficult emotionally. They are difficult intellectually because what in the world does Paul mean <laughs> that women are saved through childbearing? What's going on? I thought we're saved by grace, not through works or children or whatever, Right? A lot of trees have been killed for these verses. A lot of PhDs have been handed out for these verses. So the difficulty is greatly added, not just because it's difficult intellectually, right? But also because of our culture, there's gender confusion. What is a man? What is a woman? Are men and women equal yet different in their roles? Are there gender roles at all? Or because Christ has now come to save us and there is now neither male nor female, are they now just all rules are the same? That there's no rules, distinctions between men and women. And these are the kind of questions that these verses are um, meant to answer. And sadly, one approach to these verses has been to deny a very core Christian doctrine, and that is the inspiration of Scripture. People would say things like this about these verses. Well, that was Paul's opinion. Or... Paul didn't write this. This was another man. This, you can just safely reject it. But as Christians, whose view, that, that view is untenable because we believe all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and training in righteousness. So including the words we've just read. And that's why I hope that the song we sang before the sermon, ancient words, right? These are the words of God for us. And especially for the women, this is specifically God's word for women today. It's breathed out. It's his wisdom. It's his words. And therefore, to reject these words is to reject God's words, his wisdom for us. And I suspect that for the majority of those who might struggle with these verses, do so really more for personal reasons, right? I want to read a quote from a one woman. She writes this. She says, Every single one of my feminist friends was abused by a man who was supposed to be her protector, a father, an uncle, a husband. Is it any wonder these women don't trust men or that they equate submission with codependency, downright mindlessness? Therefore, while we must allow the Bible to remain our final authority, we should— Tackle this issue, this topic with compassion, with compassion for those who might struggle with these verses, and especially compassion when these very verses have been misapplied by men to sinfully oppress women in the name of God. I I think there are few things as damaging, as, as dangerous as men who think they are biblical men and they're not loving their wives or sacrificially leading their wives. But we say with Scripture that this vision of masculinity and femininity is to look like Jesus, right? Jesus' love for his bride by hanging on a cross, that's masculine love. And Jesus' submission to the Father is feminine love. So that Christ is both the perfect model of masculine and feminine love. We can look to the same man and become more like Christ. So let's approach this passage now, willing to allow the passage to say whatever it says. Let us submit our minds to this, these verses. And Paul's desire, just to give the context again of this, of this chapter, is to restore the gospel back to its place. Remember, false teachers have come in, and they've, beginning, they've, they've begun to teach false teaching. So Paul says, the gospel needs to be restored with prayer. Look at verse 1, so just chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So that's where we have to begin. We have to be praying people for all people. Why? Verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. Pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved. And that salvation is only um, a reality or necessary because there's only one way to be saved. Verse 5. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. But that gospel truth must not just be believed, it must also be lived out as men and women. So the gospel needs to be believed, and then it needs to be applied by the men and the women in the church. The way men act towards other men, men need to be peacemakers, slow to anger, quick to forgive, quick to reconcile look at verse 8 that's why Paul says i desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling so men should not be angry or quarreling and the women, likewise, will be changed by the gospel to be self-controlled in the way they dress. That's what verse 9 and 10 says. The women should adorn themselves, be beautiful women, in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly tie, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. In short, women who have accepted the gospel no longer want to be objects of worship, but they want to worship God. they They have changed their allegiance from themselves to God. And it is important to note that in this context, it is the corporate gathering of the church. It is when we gather like this that we need to read these verses. Because verse 8 says that in every place. Now the emphasis there is that every time the church gathers, women should not make a show of their fashion. But they should desire to be undistracting so that they can put the focus on God and His word. And this is important because what Paul writes about women and what they ought to do is in that specific context of this gathering. And that's why the title is Women at Worship. When we worship, this is what the women are supposed to do and to be. So Paul begins by giving a command, then he will go to a prohibition, and then lastly an encouragement. So that would be the outline, a command, a prohibition, And in encouragement. So first, notice Paul gives a command in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The emphasis of this verse is not the quiet. It's not the submissiveness. We'll talk about that shortly. It's the learning. What Paul says is very liberating for the women. He says, women are to be learners of God's truth, of God's word. Now, that might not sound very radical to us, right? Because we've made a lot of progress. But in this context, in the first century, there were some traditions of Judaism which have forbidden women to to learn, to be educated. So Paul comes directly against that notion that women should not be educated in any way and says, no, let the women learn. So it's almost like Moses saying, not let my people go but let the women learn. It's a, it's a liberating thing, a command for the Christian women to do. Now, there's a side application for us, and that is that Christianity is a learning religion. Love the Lord your God, as our brother prayed, with all of your mind. So women need to be theologians. Women Women's um, retreats, Shouldn't be focused on how special you are and how amazing you are and how beautiful you are. Should be focused on the Trinity, on the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, on the hypostatic union. Those are the type of topics that should be covered at the women's retreat. Right? Theology. That's what women need. Just like the men, by the way. Okay, There we are equal. We, we both need theology. Listen to Ephesians 4 verse 20. This is a summary of the Christian life. It says, that is not the way you learned Christ. That's a summary of, of, of Christianity. Learning Christ, being his disciple. Listen to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, always to the end of the age. So it is worth asking, not just for the women in the church, but for all of us. Are we still learning the Bible, Christ, theology, or have we stopped because we are content with our current level of understanding? We are content that i've already i 've read the Bible through once, so I mean, why should I read it again? But it also says something about churches. Remember, the context is women coming to church and they should be learning things sadly. Many churches, there's nothing to learn. Right? The sermons are not teaching the Bible, teaching the word of God. But that's what people should come to church and have walked away learning something. Paul's write, he's writing this to young Timothy. Remember, young Pastor Timothy, Timothy, let the women learn. So make sure you're preaching the word. Okay. Make sure that your content is of substance. Sadly, preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, is seen as boring, out of date, old-fashioned maybe. Of course, it all springs from this denial that the Bible is the living Word of God. And that's when we begin to deny the Bible as the Word of God, as inerrant, as inspired. No wonder that people will abandon the preaching of the Word of God. I love this commandment in 2 Timothy 4.2. It will be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. He says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what should Timothy do when preaching is no longer popular? Nobody likes it. Paul says, continue preaching the word in season, out of season. When it's out of season to preach the word, go on. Right? Even if preaching doesn't work, right? Don't be pragmatic about it. Be obedient and preach. That's what he says to Timothy. And that's what you should expect coming to church. Hungry to hear what God says through his word. But that learning is to be done in a specific way. So Paul gives two specific qualifications of this learning in verse 11. What does he say? He says, Let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now again, it might be difficult to hear that, and we're reading it from the 21st century bias of when a man says to a woman, be quiet, right? That doesn't go off well, and it's often not said in love and respect. That's not what Paul means when he says women should learn quietly. He's not telling women to just be quiet. That's not the idea. Because there are other examples where women are to pray and are to prophesy even. 1 Corinthians 11 where women could pray and prophesy in the church. Rather the quiet here is in the context of verse 12. We will look at that a little bit closer. But look at verse 12 when he says, I do not permit a women to teach or to exercise authority. Rather, she is to remain quiet. In other words, she should have a quiet heart not to be the pastor or the teacher of the church. She should be content to be a woman. That's the idea. Learn while embracing your calling as a woman not to be an elder or a pastor. Now, we'll look at verse 12 a little bit in detail, but that's the summary of being quiet. Learning with a quiet heart, content that God cares for you. God knows you. God loves you. God is wiser than you. He knows what is best for you. Instead of a a, a not quiet heart, would be restless, would be irritated, would be fighting, always wanting to be in the position of authority or in the position of leadership. And that's not how God wants, well, women to, to learn, but ironically, also the men. Right? Even the men in the church should not come with an axe to grind or just to prove a point. No, we should all have a quiet spirit when we come to the hearing of the word of God. But Paul says another thing in verse 11, what, not just in quietness, but also with all submissiveness. Sadly, the word submission has become a filthy word in our culture, right? It is, if you would say, what are synonymous words with, with submitting, people would say things like inferior, weak, or abused. Now, as a Christian, we reject all of that. That's not what the word means. Because Jesus himself submitted himself to the Father. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There's nothing wrong with his worth, his dignity, not not in the slightest inferior to God the Father himself. And yet he submitted himself to the Father. So, as a Christian, from a Christian worldview, we reject the idea that submission is bad or submission is 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 not a concept for for women to to obey in. And again, it's just worth noting that submission is not just something women do alone. Men submit to the Bible. Men and women submit to the King of Kings. We all have submission. Uh, we all have submission to do. Right. But what Paul says to the women, he says, learn with quiet heart, accept your femininity, learn with submissiveness. And the question here is to what? To whom? Well, in the context of the preach word, to God. So you come to church with a heart ready to obey what God says. That's what submissiveness means. So when you hear the Bible, when you hear someone preaching the Bible and you decide to do it, you're not submitting to me as the pastor Ultimately, submitting yourself to Christ, if I preach the word correctly, right? If I miss it, you should not submit to to what I'm saying, right? But ultimately, a woman who loves her Savior has learned to hear the voice of her Savior through the pages of Scripture. And her heart is ready to obey. Now, let me give you one illustration of this, just to crystallize this picture into your mind of what this learning in quietness with all submission looks like in practice mary and martha is the best illustration now this listen to luke 10 it will be on the screen as well now as they went on their way jesus entered a village and a woman named martha welcomed him into her house she had a sister called mary who sat at the lord's feet listened to his teaching But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. You are troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Do you see the contrast between a quiet spirit and maybe not a quiet spirit here? And this is the illustration. Now let me ask you this. When Mary was sitting at the feet of the Lord listening to his teaching, was there, is there anything demeaning about that? Nothing. It is, she is a disciple of Christ. She is, she is at the feet of the Messiah. And Jesus has time for it. Jesus teaches her. And she is learning. She is quiet. She's sitting at the feet and she is receiving his words. That's the picture that Paul says, let that happen every Sunday. right? When the word is preached, come with a ready heart. That's the command. So women, you should come. You should learn. You must do that. That's what disciples do. But Paul does and God makes one prohibition. That is that although women should be learning the word, the burden of pastoral ministry is not laid on her shoulders. The burden of pastoral ministry is prohibited. And that's the second point, a prohibition. Look at verse 12. And Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, again, you can imagine how many views there are of what these verses mean. Now, if, if I had to cover all of them and what they mean, we would be here until tomorrow. But generally, we may divide the interpretations in in two camps. One which says this verse is culturally sensitive. So, in other words, You should not listen to these verses because Paul had a specific situation in mind at Ephesus. And another one that says, no, this is Paul's or God's word for all women all the time in all cultures. Now, some do appeal to the historical context. They would say things like the women in Ephesus were not educated and therefore they were not permitted to teach because they would be unwise or that they were false teachers or teaching amongst the women. And therefore, if they were to teach, that would have been detrimental to the church. Now, that, that doesn't work because of the. If we look at the rest of Scripture, um, and I love the example of Priscilla and Aquila. Okay, now here's where it's, it even challenges our view a little bit. Listen to Acts 18, verse, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scripture. So here's a man that knows the Bible. He has been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervently in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila—that's important—heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Did you see that? Here's a, a married couple, Aquila, Priscilla, and Aquila, man and a wife, teaching together another man, Apollos. Okay. But the context here is different because this is not um, the public gathering of the church. This is a private setting where Apollos is gathered probably in their homes and they are teaching him the word of God. Now, do you see, I think in that context, it's not wrong for a woman to instruct a man as um, probably with her husband as a just wisdom, right? But we see that, that this wasn't breaking these verses. And also, guess where this happened? Where was Apollos? Where was Priscilla and Aquila? At Ephesus. This is the very city that Paul is writing to in 1 Timothy. So the very city where the claim is made that women were false teachers or were uneducated falls on its face because there was a Priscilla and Aquila there, right? Who were educated. The women there knew the word. Okay. So it just doesn't work to say, well, women weren't educated. That's why um, they shouldn't teach the word. Now then, what does it mean when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority? In context, these two words, to teach and to exercise authority, specifically refers to the office of an elder and a pastor. Those are the summaries of what a pastor is to do. A pastor is a leader, or he is uh, an office bearer of an overseer, and he's a teacher. Now, just a few verses later, Paul writes that one of the key qualifications of an elder is to teach. Look at verse 3 to 5, So 3 verse 2. Just a few verses down. Paul says, therefore an overseer, that's an elder, a pastor, a leader of the church, you could say, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's one of the key ministries of the pastoral office is to teach. Now go to chapter 5 with me, verse 17 to 18 as well. Chapter 5 verse 17. It says, Let the elders who rule well, now you hear the authority, right? The elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. You see, this is what Paul has in mind when he says, I do not permit to women to teach or exercise authority that they are not allowed to be a pastor of a church. That's a summary. Now, you might ask why. Why? That just doesn't make sense. What if women are better preachers than men? Now, I want to say, I think there are women that can preach better than me. Okay, so this is not like a competition thing of like who's doing it best or not. It's not an ability issue. It's the way God made us issue. Okay? What masculinity and femininity is how God designed us to function. Now, I just want to clarify before we go on to the reasons that Paul gives, this these verses emphatically do not mean that women cannot teach at all, like we've just seen with Priscilla and Aquila, or that they do not have the gift of teaching or the gift of leadership. There are verses where women are to lead their households, their families, and also to teach other women. Listen to Titus 2. This is the classic text, but this is the one you should remember. Just look at how consistent the Bible is here. It says, All the women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So you see, here Paul says, women teach. But look at what he says. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Men like Timothy himself have been prepared for salvation by his mother and his grandmother. I, I don't think you understand the awesome weight of glory that rests on motherhood and women teaching other women, discipling, missionaries, women missionaries going to go to the nations. The, the ministries of women are countless. What a glorious thing. So it would be a mistake to take these verses and to say, therefore, women cannot teach at all. That would be a misapplication. But now look at the reasons. And I, I, I hope you can see with me that there are two reasons that Paul gives. The first one is because of creation and secondly, because of the fall. Look at verse 13. So back in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul now gives the first reason. He says, for why should an, a, woman, a woman not teach or excite authority over a man? Adam was formed first. Then Eve. So notice that Paul puts the reason for why women are not to be pastors, not in the culture, not in Ephesus, not in women not being educated, but in creation. Now, a Bible trivia question to what chapter specifically does Paul talk about when he says Adam was formed first, then Eve in the Bible? You could argue Genesis 2, right? Genesis 1 and 2 was that before or after sin came into the world. This is before sin came into the world, before there was anything wrong with men and women, with creation. God made Adam first to make a point, to show male headship, male leadership. In other words, this was God's design. This was his purpose, that men should lead. Now, here's the irony. Women that don't want men to lead or at the very same time frustrated that men don't lead, right? The women that want to resist male headship are irritated to their skulls that the men are just sitting around and doing nothing. You see, God just made us to be like that, that men should be leading and although women might resist it because of her sinful nature, there's also a desire for men to lead, to do something, to protect her, right? And this is the simple thing that Paul says, like the burden of leadership, just like the burden of leadership in a, in a family rests on the husband, in the same way, the burden of responsibility in the church, do you hear my phrases? In the church. In the gathering of the saints rests on men, the elders, the pastors. That's the first reason. But here's the second reason. And now here are so many landmines. But look at verse 14. Not just because of creation, but because of the fall. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Again, some have wrongly concluded that these verses mean that women are more gullible than men. No, that's not what it says. That's not what it teaches. I think that really misses the point. Rather, what, is, what Paul is alluding to here is now he's referring to Genesis chapter 3, the fall. And we see what the devil's intention was there. The devil did not approach Adam. The devil approached Eve to also make a point to reverse the rules. That was his purpose. He intentionally bypassed Adam To deceive Eve. Adam was not the one that was deceived. The devil deceived the women. Instead, Adam was supposed to be the protector, supposed to be the leader, supposed to rush in and crush the head of the serpent right there, right then. Say, what are you doing with my wife? Instead, we see Adam probably resting in the bushes. I don't know where he was, but he says he was with her in verse 6 of Genesis 3, passively looking, seeing what will happen if his wife eats the fruit first. Oh, she didn't die. Okay, I'm safe too. Right? Uh, one pastor said that's the spiritual equivalent of shoving your wife under the bus, of testing and seeing what's happening. She was the guinea pig, right? But in crea- and what was happening with that fall was the, the order of creation was flipped on its head. The way it was meant to be was God over man, man over women, women and man over creation. But in in the fall and in the temptation, it was flipped. The creation, illustrated by the serpent, was at the top. Then the woman, then the man, and then at the bottom, God. So it was literally, the fall was a flip of the way God made us. And there, from that, came all of our suffering and our pain and our hurt. But interestingly, what did God do when he confronted Adam and Eve? Whom did he approach first to ask what's going on? The man. You see, although Eve sinned first or was was deceived first, God didn't approach her. He came to Adam. Adam, what's going on? Where are you? It was his responsibility to protect his wife, to protect the garden, and he didn't. He was passive, he was lazy. And the Bible really places the blame at Adam's feet. If you know your Bible, it was because Adam sinned that the whole world is cursed. Because one man sinned, death came into the world, Romans chapter 5, right? So God doesn't place the blame at the not like what Adam did, right? Lord, the woman you gave me, she made me. No, you, Okay. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, let let me try and say a a paragraph to try and put the whole text into like a summary phrase. So, So Paul says, Timothy, see to it that the women in the church are learning. Make sure that they are sheologians, that they are studying the Bible. But let them do that with a quiet heart in all submissiveness. Let them embrace their femininity. And that means that the office of an elder and a pastor is not appropriate for women to hold because God has given that role to men. And that is how God made us. He made us men and women, Adam first, then Eve. And beware, consider what happens when you reverse the roles. That's basically a summary of what Paul is saying here. Now, therefore, let me say this. If this interpretation is correct, if we are consistent with this passage, consistent with the rest of the Bible, which I think we are, it is a serious thing to ordain women into the ministry or into the office of an elder and a pastor. I do not think it is a heaven or hell issue. So I would never, uh, a woman pastor who loves the Lord, who believes the gospel, I would not say that that woman is not going to heaven, but I do think it is going against the way God has made us. And I think even if it doesn't have immediate consequences in that generation it will have generational consequences to come that's just how sin works when we disobey god when we don't trust his wisdom his word we we are not left unhurt we're not left without the consequences of that now paul turns a page to a very positive note, and for some of you it might not be positive, but it, it, is, an, it is a positive thing, and it turns and ends with an encouragement. This is the third and the final point, in verse fifteen. What does he say? Yet, she will be saved through childbearing. Some of you are like, "Can I just get some air?" Like, <laughs> every verse is just like heavy. But okay, let's 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 look at it. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. So what does this mean? Well, it, this is like a puzzle you have to build, right? So you just start with one word at a time and ask yourself, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And then you try to build the puzzle after you've done that. So first, let's ask, what does Paul mean when he says saved? Some people don't take it as spiritual salvation, but maybe just like um, saved temporarily or saved from the consequences of childbearing. Remember, in the, in the context of when it was written, women, um, women often died in childbearing. It, was a, it wasn't a, like a, a given or a granted like today where there's a great success of, of children being born and women being alive after that. But I don't think that works because it doesn't fit with the, what the word saved means. Now, in the context of 1 Timothy, the way Paul uses the word saved over and over again. Okay, so here's the climax. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, no joke. Um, is the way he uses the word saved throughout 1 Timothy – always refers to spiritual, eternal salvation. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Just a reminder. Some of you are like, hey, I can read my Bible now. <laughs> that's. Um, I'm glad you can catch up. Okay, 1, verse 15 says, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Chapter 2, verse 4, we've read it earlier. Just a reminder again. God desires all people to be saved. So, And right throughout the pastoral epistles, the word saved is used consistently in this way of spiritual salvation. So if we just take out the middle part, childbearing, the text actually makes sense. Women will be saved if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. That just makes sense, right? Because just like other verses in the Bible, you will be saved if you endure to the end. That's just a biblical teaching. That's the first piece of the puzzle. I think saved here means spiritual eternal salvation. But now, what do we mean by childbearing? What is this word? What does it mean? Now, there is a very good view, and if you hold this view, I actually am a little bit jealous because it's such an awesome view. I wish I, I, wish I had that view, but it's not my view. Okay, it, it. Some people take childbearing as referring to the birth of Christ, the birth of Jesus. Now, that also makes a lot of sense. Women are saved through the birth of Christ. He will be saved, and he will save, or he will be. You shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. And that also fits with Genesis 3.15, right? In the full account, what did God promise to the serpent? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first gospel promise, that through offspring, God is going to save us. And guess what we need for a baby to be born? A woman, okay? So again, I think that's an awesome view, and I, I almost went for it. But I think the biggest obstacle to that view is the word itself. That's just not the natural way childbearing is used. It, childbearing means childbearing. It means it's also a synonymous with motherhood. So it could, Paul, Paul could have also write, women will be saved through their mothering of children. And I think it's the best to just take it like that. That's what Paul means. Um, Christian women will be saved when they fulfill the role that most women in this world will will have. That is marriage and bearing children. When they faithfully fulfill those biblical roles, they are pleasing God as a Christian woman. Now, you might say, how could Paul ever write that? That just is a very strange thing to say, right? But in the context of chapter 4, I want you to go there with me. Chapter 4. This makes perfect sense because of what the false teachers were saying. Look at what chapter 4 verse 1 says. Now the Spirit expressly says, And in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So false teachers were forbidding marriage. They said to the women... If you are married, you are not a faithful follower of Christ. You have to be single. So what Paul says is no. It's the other way around. If you are married, if you are bearing children, that's awesome. That's great. You are fulfilling what what most Christian women will have in this life. So in other words, it's not somehow a waste of your life to be a wife and to be a mother. That's an awesome calling from God. One that you should never think Like, oh, but my talents, my abilities, my career, I'm just pouring it into this child. Well, guess what? You are changing the world by raising children. If you want to change the world, commit to your own family. Commit to raising the children God has given you for the glory of God and see those children go and change the world. It's it's not the calling that you might feel people are going to applaud you every time you change a diaper, right? But with multi-generational purposes, raising godly children has enormous blessing to the world. Now, of course, if you are single, if you are not married, if you don't have children, if you can't have children, this doesn't mean that you are somehow not um, serving Christ. Remember, Paul just wants, he wants to correct the idea that to be single not having children or married is bad no it's good and that's why he ends the passage like this what does he say at the end of of verse 15 they will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control so Paul says it's not children that saves you it's faith faith in Christ if you put your trust in Jesus he will wash away all your sins, and you will go to heaven by grace as a gift. Faith and love. Love refers to the summary of what we ought to do. If you just love, you do everything. Love is the evidence that you are a believer, and then holiness. You are set apart for God. You, are, you don't belong to the world. You belong to God. Therefore, think differently. Don't think like the world thinks. That calls marriage evil. That calls children bad. So, beloved, we live in a culture that just is anti-children, anti-family. And Paul says, no. Paul is pro-learning for women and pro-children. He's pro-children. But he says, those are not the things that that saves you. It is when you are set apart, when you continue in the faith, when you trust in Christ. That is your salvation. Now, this is the tip of the iceberg. I wish I had another five sermons to help you but that's why we are in the church right you can ask these questions uh, anytime with for me Um, but this is god's word he has made us male and female both of us are in the image of god we are equal in worth in dignity and women are fully included yet god has made us different women are to be content not to lead both in their families and in the church and ironically, women should, should be glad to do the one thing that a man can never do, right? If there's anything a woman can say, you will never be able to do this, okay? It is childbearing, okay? That's the, it's an awesome thing. We can trust our good creator's wisdom as we follow him. So when we come to Christ, he doesn't want to destroy your maleness, your femaleness. He wants to restore you to help you obey him. Let's pray together. Lord, we come and we confess, Lord, that that these words are difficult to understand and to interpret and even to apply to our lives. Lord, I know many women here and many men here are at different places in their lives in the They walk with you, they love for you, the understanding of what it means to be a man and a woman. Father, I pray that you would use verses like these to show the goodness of your creation and your wisdom. Lord, let us trust you and not lean on our own understanding in these matters. But I pray, Lord, that you would also bring true healing to many women who have perhaps felt wrong um, authority or leadership may they come again to trust your word and the goodness of your word and to follow Christ above all. Or May we as a church be faithful to pray for all people that all may be saved and may they see the beauty of masculinity and femininity in our marriages, our families, in our, even in our singleness as we follow you, to make disciples of all nations, Lord, that we would be faithful to that calling. We pray and ask these things, Lord, for your name's sake. Amen.